HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wild Alaska Pollock, the fish of the future. Learn more and try a free sample at wildakpollock.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. It's Thanksgiving, so we're talking turkey with sweet potato casserole, stuffing, cranberry sauce, and pecan pie. But we're also discovering some surprising truths about this holiday. As it turns out, roasted turkeys are actually nowhere near the original Thanksgiving tables. In fact, most of the foods we eat for Thanksgiving today weren't eaten in Plymouth. And you know, a lot of the dishes came about, well, because of the products that were on the shelves and the marketing that told us this is the product we should use. Every once in a while, though, the consumer creates the food trend. Care to top the turducken, anyone? Uh, I've got to give credit to this fellow that said this is the best pile of meat I've ever had and then said, but if you added bacon... Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week I interview an inspiring person in the hospitality business about their successes and their challenges along the wiggly way. My guest today has built an Oregon-based ice cream mega empire on both in both terms of business and in life. She is audacious. When I think about the flavors of the ice cream, they're crazy and make sense in your mouth. When I think about how the business started, it was crazy, but now that there are 17 locations, it makes sense both on paper and in the real world. And so today, my guest is Kim Malik from Salt and Straw. Kim, welcome to Speaking Broadly. Oh, thank you so much. So I'm, I'm curious about that audacity, because I think it's probably a little bit in inborn. And one of the reasons I, I think that is that early on in your life, when you were in college, there was uh, an event that would have changed the course of your life where you're not a completely audacious, determined, <laughs> badass human. And, and that was the phone call from your uncle, as I understand it, who called you and said, just so you know, 
your family is having a really hard time financially. In fact, your dad's going bankrupt. Um, was that a shock? Mm-hmm. To put it lightly, yeah. You said in um, inborn, it's maybe it's a little inbred. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, yeah, I can remember I grew up in just sort of a nice middle class family. Um, you know, worked hard throughout my in Montana. Life. In Montana, yeah, one of the few. And right, well, the right, yes, the who ends up with an ice cream company, <laughs> you know, all across <laughs> America for sure, one of the few. Yeah, so I I was going to a small private school um, outside of Seattle, not a fancy school, but just a kind of a nice little community and. Um, kind of proceeding with my life and my uncle calls me out of the blue and and wants to give me a heads up that back home my um, mom and dad are having some financial problems and you know it's an interesting um, thing for me to carry around with me because what led um, them down this path was my dad starting his own business so it sort of haunted me my whole life even when I started in like 1996 having this dream of opening a company I quickly shut that down and closed it away because it had just had such a traumatic effect on our family Um, I didn't drop out of school but I started working like three jobs and um, sort of just um, muscled through and, and made my way and it certainly has given me a different perspective on life than I would have had otherwise so first I want to know why your uncle called Hmm. That's a great question. I've never really thought about why he called. I mean, one thing my family does really well, which um, serves us, it's its like your biggest strength and your worst weakness is um, we're really super positive. And um, so we can kind of shove, shove things down and hide things away. And you don't really know what the problems are that are brewing. So it's quite possible that this would have gotten really far down the path without me knowing. Um, so I think he just took it upon himself. He had, he had kind of found this out and, and wanted to make sure I knew so that I could make decisions, um, thank God, uh, that would safeguard myself. Because I think that's actually quite daring on his part, you know, taking that role and giving you the heads up. And I appreciate you, it. Your, your father um, had started his own business. What was that business? Oh, <laughs> and gosh. And I've thought about this a lot because I, I, it must have been in, yeah, it was in the late 80s. And it was an office supply company, so not super sexy, but it must have been during the time, I haven't looked into this when, you know, a lot of the sort of super stores were starting to take off, and I'm not sure exactly what um, led to its demise in our, you know, great, everything's okay, we have never dived into that deeply. <laughs> but man, now you're making me want to uh, go back and talk to him a little bit about that, but it, that, that was the, the company. And when you reflected on his... Um, lack of success there. Um, did you have a sense of what that was, which would help safeguard you as you began building your own business? Yeah, I mean, to me, um, it, it, I kind of looked at it a little bit the opposite. So I think, um, you know, starting an ice cream company in Portland, Oregon seems uh, on paper to be the worst idea ever. I don't know if you know, but it rains a lot there. <laughs> and it's chilly. <laughs> it's really cold. And, um, And so I think, you know, for me, uh, being an entrepreneur, I mean, I I don't even think you can consider that you'll fail in a way. Like, you just go forth with this idea, and it's almost like if failure comes, it's going to be part of it, and you're going to keep going. And so 
um, knowing that my father had gone through that, I, I think as I set out along the path, um, I planned probably a little bit longer than one typically would from like 1996 to 2011. <laughs> <laughs> That's longer than typical for sure. Yeah. And then part of that could be being a woman, but, um, uh, and sort of perfecting things before I bring it forth. But the other thing I think was, um, you know, surrounding myself with kind of um, people who I thought would um, not financially help me, but um, sort of philosophically push me forward. And um, so that was really the those those were sort of the two things that I held on to my cousin being one of them. Right. So you kept it you kept it in the family. Yeah. And so was there a, the emotional fallout for you from what I've read was pretty in, intense. Like, how would you describe that? Um, that time and then coming out of it. Yeah, I mean, I can remember shortly after that, um, like getting shingles and just, you know, really um, growing up, my father was a recovering alcoholic um, shortly after that. And I think as the oldest kid in a family, when you're dealing with that, like your role is to make everything seem like it's okay to the public. And I think I kept that up um, all through this. Um, Maybe, unfortunately, I learned later in life going through a divorce, actually, that you don't have to do that. And there's great power in not doing that. But going through college and, and not and, hiding things. and not hiding things mm-hmm. and bringing people into the, the challenges that you're having. Um, great power for yourself and I think for the other people in your community. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, like I said, I, I worked three jobs, put myself under just a huge amount of stress. The great thing was, it like gave me all this experience. Um, when I graduated, you triple timed your experience. For yeah, sure. when I graduated <laughs> from college, I had all these opportunities um, that a lot of my other folks, my friends graduating, didn't have. So um, you know, I don't know. I guess there's there's good and bad to it. I just I, I want to dwell on the notion of secret for a second because there's a couple of secrets that you've kept that you've not revealed. <laughs> so I'm not no. revealing any of your secrets. <laughs> I promise. But um, you had you know you were filling out a small business administration, you know, roadmap and plan in secret. Yes. And um, so tell me about that. Like, why was it in secret and what did you learn? And it seems like you have great things to say about the SBA. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can Google the SBA and meet with them and... um, and you have a good framework for filling out this plan. Um, and, you know, if, I'm a Capricorn. So if there's anything I do, it's like, actually, if someone gives me a little bit of a hint, I will follow it all the way to the end. So I think, um, gosh, I remember the first time I told someone this idea, it was Sarah Masoni, who worked at the Food Innovation Center in Portland. And I sat across the table from her at this really crazy dive bar. It was actually the dive bar where they found the papers that Tanya Harding um, threw away that like revealed that the whole Nancy um, attack. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So we're meeting at this bar and having breakfast, of course, nothing too scandalous. And um, I could not get the words out of my mouth. Like I'm gonna, I'm thinking about, I'm gonna, I've been working on a plan to start. I mean, it's a company. You wouldn't believe how I talked around it. And she just sat there. One of her super skills is to sit there quietly and listen and not fill in the silence and the blanks. And I finally said an ice cream company and she just looked at me and she said, I'll help you. Oh, I'd love that. It was great. And she said, you should do it and I will help you. So I I think it was the right person to tell. And she really did help. Um, She's a food scientist, brilliant. Um, 
And Why did you choose her? Reveal. Um, because I thought she could help me. Yeah. I think, I mean, we had worked together in past lives. She was a, a, an amazing product developer and, um, and I, I knew that she would be the right person to help me craft the, the ice cream dream. And was it hard to keep it to yourself? Or was it actually... It wasn't hard. No. <laughs> it was so much harder to tell. I can remember when we opened, um, we had a little push cart, and um, uh, a reporter named Allison in Portland, um, I reached out to her, I emailed her, and I thought, we're going to open this cart, and I've been in marketing my whole life, and I know I should tell someone about this, and so... <laughs> I emailed her and I remember closing my eyes and hitting send and she responded within an hour and said, oh, I want to come. And she was from Portland Monthly and do a story about it. And I felt such dread. <laughs> I was like, now everyone's going to know. And my like, beautiful little idea I've been carried around is going to be put through the, the test. It's so much better in your head. <laughs> I don't know. It's really great in person, I have to say. It's turned out much better in person than it was in my head. So, Okay, tell me what, what was in your head. Because as I understand it, you've been dreaming this actually kind of since camp. Yes. <laughs> so I, gosh, I, I must have been in grade school. And I went to camp at um, Eastern Montana College. And I can remember summer camp laying in the grass and reading a book um, by Peggy Noonan because I thought I'd be a speechwriter at the time. And I put it aside. And for whatever reason, I was just struck by having this childhood of a, just this really connected community where, you know, I was kind of a free range kid on my bike. I would leave in the morning, come back at night and throughout the day would have been in all these really special places throughout the city where you had these communities that were um I loved it. And so I thought to myself, um, and this was in the like mid eighties, I'd like to have a coffee shop within a bookstore. Cause I, and it wasn't cause I was crazy about coffee. Um, but I wanted to, I knew that could kind of be that community gathering place. And this was before Starbucks was everywhere and <laughs> there was no pizza on every corner. So, um, they thought I was a little crazy when I brought it up. In I'm curious camp. about that notion of community, which it's a through line in your life, right? You started, like, if we trust your memory, which we're going to, you know, you were trying to commu create community in a coffee shop way back then. Like, what do you think that really meant to you? Because now it's such a social currency and we all want to create community. Mm. And we need community because we spend a whole lot of time on our phones and in our computers. But what do you think that meant? Was it that um, it was something that was missing in another place or is just like, mm. or did it was Billings, Montana, right? Did, is, yeah. did Billings just feel like that's what it meant to you? or I mean, I think I had a sense for what coming together as a community could build. And I, um, my family growing up, it's a very conservative family, and I'm very liberal. <laughs> so I'm um, sort of one of the black sheep in the family. But um, Are you still? Mm, yeah. There's two of us. My aunt is a Montana state um, Democrat uh, in the state legislature, but um, she and I, so yeah, definitely still a black sheep. But I we need have to know to more about that, but we'll keep going we need on. To I have non-political, you know, holiday dinners. <laughs> but um, but I I think between that, the, so what I have come to realize, which was great about, even though it was this um, conservative uh, ism growing up, there was this passion for politics and getting involved and. I, I think that's what drives me to really be passionate about community is I think it can change. Um, it can change people. It can change. You, you can come together to make a difference. And um, that's, I think, where that came from. 
Okay, so I'm I'm curious about the notion of being the black sheep in a family because of politics, mm-hmm. um, because in every other way, like could they have a more successful daughter? Oh. They actually couldn't. Um, but you've also made some radical choices. Um, you married an African American man who you met in a bar, mm-hmm. who's <laughs> <laughs> um, astonishingly well educated, and I believe is an anesthesiologist. Good, yeah, right. And um, and then you have three kids who you adopted, which is another secret that we'll, we'll get to. <laughs> but is it like the life choices that makes you a black sheep in a conservative family? Because some families put success above everything else. Some families put values above everything else. Um, I wonder what you think. Yeah. No, I mean, my parents are unbelievably proud. Um, and, and you know, it's been cool to have kids because I now understand how that binds families together and, and kind of raises you above those other issues. Um, they were just visiting while I was traveling, and then I got to see them for a little while, and I almost didn't want them to leave, which is a big change from how it's been in the past. Um, so I think it's really about values mm-hmm. and, you know, gosh, they've lived their whole lives in Montana. Not that, I mean, so is my aunt and, um, I've just been exposed to different things and, um, and so it's, it's definitely a, just a, it just, we have a different value system and view of the world. So you just don't talk politics? Not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. I mean, we're not going to change each other and I think it gets in the way of, you know, this really great. Um, family dynamic that I now can see is more valuable. And I can't believe I'm saying that because five years ago... What do you think changed? Yeah, before having kids, five years ago, I would have just fallen on my sword over over these issues, and even with my own family. And now I can see... I get... It's a fine line. So let's let's talk about the, um, the secret of adoption. Yeah. This notion that you had in your mind... Um, that you nurtured through research of adopting a, a child. Where did that um, stem from? Yeah. Well, it was interesting. I I think I um, maybe mentioned, so Mike um, is my partner, and he came home from work one day and um, said, well, so we were in our 40s, and we were kind of trying to get pregnant, and that wasn't working, and we both knew we weren't going to go to any extraordinary measures to to make it happen. And so he came home one day and said, Oh, I saw this video of these kids that are up for adoption. And he showed it to me and I said, Whoa, would you want to adopt? And he said, well, yeah, I, I, that's kind of been my preference, but he knew I didn't want to say anything to you. Cause I thought if you wanted to give birth, you know, um, that we should do that. And I said, Oh my gosh. And I ran into the bedroom and up on the very top corner in the shelf, I had hidden when I moved in with him, this pile of books about adoption that I'd been carrying around for years and researching. And I said, that's my preference too. I would prefer to adopt. And, um, we both were trying to do what we thought the other, um, would want and kind of give them that gift. Um, how do you think it never came up before? I think it was, um, you know, like let's have a baby and, oh, okay. And we'll try to get pregnant. And, and you assume it's assuming that, that that's what the other person really wants. They want to have, there's such a drive, I think, in our society to to give birth and have your own child, and it's weird that we assumed we both wanted that. But at the same time, I mean, that's that's the norm. So I guess that's it's not that weird. But he came from a background that, um, yeah, you know, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, he had been um, in and out of foster care, and then was ultimately a, a 
adopted and then reconnected with his birth mom. And so he had this background. I had always had this dream of adopting internationally. Um, and so he said, oh, no, you know, I just let's try to look here within the United States. And I just had these really weird preconceived ideas of what the foster care system was like in the United States. And so I entered into it very warily. And wouldn't you know it, like out the gates, we, um, well, we were sitting at, they put you through all this training, which is great, but we're sitting at lunch during the training session one day. And he said, well, I have one more confession to make. I would really prefer older kids. And I said, me too, (laughs) without question. And so, of course, because we wanted older kids, they found within literally days, they found, um, these two kids for us. And so, um, we, uh, we met them and they were lovely. I mean, beyond like they're the people we would choose to hang out with if we could just pick people. So, and if you could be a little younger, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> if I could be ten, yeah. I would hang out with them. <laughs> yeah. I guess as a mom, it's good to hang out with them too. <laughs> I like hanging out with my kids. Yeah, kids. If you're listening, I like hanging out with you. It's fun. Um, and so you've you've often said like you are the only white person in your family. Yeah. And that's that's a different feeling because so often as we walk through the world, it's so the opposite. Um, What is that? What's that like for you? Yeah. It's funny. um, Whenever one of the kids will say, mom, you're the only white person. My daughter (laughs) will oftentimes say, she's not white. She's peach. You guys, she's peach. (laughs) And um, she trying to make you more like them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Uh, A little bit. And also just they talk a lot about like we're not actually black, you know, and they'll show that even, you know, they have different shades of brown and I'm not exactly white. They'll show a piece of white paper. So just that idea of black and white is an interesting conversation. And um, gosh, you know, I it's been it's been eye opening, I guess, just to state the obvious. I mean, sitting in you know teacher meetings over the years and having to have conversations that are quite obviously you know racially driven um it, and I, I what can't are those conversations it. oh you know like being a, in a kindergarten class and you know i don't know if your child can learn and and okay. they're not learning that's and chilling it, no it is and it's fine if they can't we don't have a problem with that we would help them but that's not the case and then you know, the teacher's very obviously explaining about testing to us. And I finally said, yeah, you know, this guy sitting next to me just was recertified on his boards. He knows about testing. I mean, she's assuming that we don't, you know, because we're this biracial couple. I don't know. But so these assumptions are often made. And then we have to, and Mike always says, you know, the greatest gift someone can give you is to underestimate you. So it's fine. <laughs> um, you <laughs> well, I think you, you've also said, though, don't ever underestimate <laughs> don't me. Underestimate. <laughs> so it's fine. I mean, he and I are a good pair from that perspective. But um, it's infuriating. And it's hard to have these conversations over and over. And, and Portland's a funny city because it's the whitest city in the United States on uh, a per capita basis, and it doesn't have a friendly history um, with African Americans. And so there's, and yet it's like the liberal, most liberal city in the United States and has all these great things going for it, but there's some um, challenging undertones, undertones to kind of have to work through. Um, so, what do you th- I think account, uh, accounts for the intolerance among the liberals? If that's what you see. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not even... not the right way to say it, maybe? I I don't know if it's intolerance as much as... And gosh, I think I was walking around with the same um, 
perspectives probably seven years ago, but walking in and not, you know, gosh, it's all these unconscious bias, you know, walking in and, and making assumptions right off the bat when you start to talk to someone and deal with them. And especially for kids, I mean, adults too. I mean, gosh, if Mike goes to the corner store at night, I sit at home worrying, you know, is he going to be pulled over and um, and Jamari, our oldest kid, um, you know, teaching him about, you know, how to deal with the police. He's 10. And if anything ever happens, there's this whole story about how, you know, kids, you know, little, little, um, guys, especially when they're four or five, six, they're so cute. And when they're 10, 11, 12, they start to become, you know, people start to fear them. And so it's just a weird, um, it's a weird thing. I remember, my youngest was asking me something and, um, oh, he saw someone carrying a gun. It was a policeman and he said he was worried. And I said, you know, it'll be, you'll be okay. It's okay. You don't need to be worried. And in my heart, I kind of teared up a little bit. Like, I don't know if I can make that promise to him. And so. It's really hard. The adopting of the children came quite soon on the heels of opening the business. Yeah. Which makes for, I imagine, really busy, really <laughs> tense, potentially, time. Did it ever seem like maybe that was a lot to take on all at once? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people always say there's no good time to have kids. And so um, so I guess that's true no matter what. Uh, yeah, there were moments I can remember uh, just feeling like... Um, just terrified. I've done, this is too much. I can't do it all. Um, and then I would think, um, I heard this guy, I went to a kind of a, um, meditation, <laughs> um, seminar one time. And I remember, I remembered this guy, Joe Depencia saying, um, you know, just wake up with a clear head and know that you're going to do what's in front of you the best you can. And then you'll do the next thing. And, so I take that approach, and um, and it's worked. And um, I try to just be really, really present no matter where I am, knowing that I'm probably letting 10 balls fall in the meantime, but that uh, it's the best I can do. And so it's working, I think, <laughs> most of the time. Yeah, that, that notion of being present is so difficult, mm-hmm. particularly since there's you know, probably homework, there's probably a meal to cook, there's probably travel, there's probably... You know, a business Email. business decisions, emails. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have an answer to control all those things? No, I mean, <laughs> I don't. I will say that probably the worst, the the two things that suffer the most for me are my health. Like I used to run marathons, and I was really healthy, and I am completely off um, on that front. And so, I really am trying to figure a way to. Um, build that back. Um, speaking of juggling, someone was saying you can juggle a lot of balls, but the one that falls, if the one that falls is your health, it's glass and it'll <gasps> shatter and you can't put that back together. So, um, so I'm worried about that. And I, um, and I also feel like you're like my relationship with my spouse mm-hmm. is really hard to prioritize as well. So those are things that I'm trying to be more aware of and be more intentional about. And, you know, whatever I pay attention to seems to really flourish. So I know, you know, that that's possible. And um, I think, you know, hopefully being aware of it will will help see improvements. <laughs> You'll check in in a year. I will check in on you. I'll <laughs> check in on you in a month. Um, I think it's very hard. I, I would love to prioritize doing some kind of uh, yoga because I actually like yoga. I hate Me all too. sports, but I like yoga. And um, it's just, it is hard. 
because other things are inevitably more appealing or they're right in front of you like mm-hmm. yoga I don't know requires a mat <laughs> it doesn't really require much <laughs> it requires me to just do it Good as point. a friend of mine said to me because I was complaining about this exact thing just last night like I really want to do yoga and she's like then why don't you I'm like start tomorrow well, if morning. it was if it was that easy I think I would have done it um <laughs> it's hard it's but uh, we can do it but we can do it Right, we'll just we'll commit and we'll do it. Um, with that thought, we're going to commit and do it. We're going to check in on each other. Uh, we're going to take a, a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to hear about the the birth and growth of Salt and Straw, one of the most incredible ice cream companies in the U.S. So stay with us and hear more from Kim Malik after the break. This episode is brought to you by Wild Alaska Pollock, the fish of the future. Wild Alaska Pollock is incredibly delicious, highly nutritious, and perpetually sustainable. Among the last frontier's many natural wonders, Wild Alaska Pollock just might be the state's best-kept secret. This cousin to cod has lean, snowy white meat, delicate texture, and a mild flavor that makes it extremely versatile and tasty. Only pollock caught in Alaskan waters by U.S. fishermen can be labeled Wild Alaska Pollock. Unlike other pollock products, Wild Alaska Pollock is filleted and frozen just once within hours of being caught to preserve freshness, flavor, and texture. And now, food service professionals can try Wild Alaska Pollock for free. Request your sample at wildakpollock.com and discover the fish of the future. That's wildakpollock.com. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly. And my guest today is Kim Malik from Salt and Straw, uh, an incredible ice cream company that... Wonder, do you have another tagline? Because some people are like, yeah, it's an ice cream company, but it's really a happiness factory. <laughs> do you have... Um- <laughs> happiness factory is good. We always talk about with our team... Our mission is to be the happiest part of people's day. Okay, so like when we're making decisions and how we go about things, that's our question. So, um, so we just before the break, we were talking about how um, you know Kim wants to commit to being healthier and some more time with her, her spouse, <coughs> and I indeed would value both of those as well. But I I have to just um, ask one question about your sporting life before we uh, move on to your business, which is synchronized swimming. <laughs> okay. Oh, I just, I love the fact that you are a state <laughs> champion. Like, tell me about that. I mean, this doesn't have to be long, but you were a synchronized. Oh, yeah. I mean, you wear some little known fact, the, the way that they keep their hair perfect, you put um, like the gelatin in your hair and, you know, the whole thing. My dad was the coach and uh-huh. I could hold my breath the whole length of the pool. That's many, a, many talents. That is many talents. Did mm-hmm. that take a lot of work and determination <laughs> and audacity? How it we started? Totally this did. We're yeah. We had to work really, really hard. I I did notice someone pointed out there's a master synchronized swimming group in Portland, Oregon. So maybe I'll be back. Why not? <gasps> Kim, do that. <laughs> Make that your sport. Wouldn't that be amazing? The reemergence of Kim Malik. She does synchronized swimming. And then when you get out of the pool, everybody can have like customized ice cream. Exactly. <gasps> Polar. Why? Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'll talk to him. Why wouldn't yeah. we? Why wouldn't you? Okay. 
I think we've resolved that. So um, <laughs> when you <laughs> you began um, Salt and Straw, and, and kind of none of it made sense because Portland, Oregon, ice cream, raining cold, and um, mm-hmm. everyone agreed with that perception. Anyone you went to as an investor, they're like, what a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kept going. But tell me about going to investors. I feel like it is, you know, it's the golden age of entrepreneurship. And what did you learn that you carry <laughs> forward? Uh, three people stick out in my mind. First of all, I it was 2010, I guess, early 2010. And I literally met with all these banks crazy banks were collapsing so i'm oh banks were collapsing right they had just gotten through the great recession and here i am walking in with all the hope in the world um and my little business plan and the great thing about the banks was they went through my financials and my business plan in detail and got it in super good shape Uh did not give me any money but that was awesome then I was meeting with... Did it actually help to have like a beautiful business plan? Like, did you use that as a... Because some people say they don't have a business plan. Did you really use it as a roadmap? I mean, don't get me wrong. It wasn't anything like over the top, you know, four inches thick. But yeah, it yeah. helped just to know kind of like, here's the financially where we think we're going to go. And here's um, like how we're going to make decisions and what's important to us. I mean, the, the, this leads me to the next thing. I mean, one of the things we built into the business plan was like a really robust training and benefits and investment in employees. And I got my business plan back from a possible investor and he had written all over it in red ink, a couple typos he pointed out, which was great, <laughs> but he um, wrote across the top who you can't do this. Who do you think you are? Starbucks. And, I later got the chance to tell Howard Schultz that, and he laughed, and he said, I wish you had shown me the plan. But, um, but Because for <laughs> listeners, um, one of the three jobs that Kim had when <laughs> she was uh, you know, making the money to pay for her education was as a barista at Starbucks, and then after she graduated, she joined the marketing team and then had a really robust career there. And then um, Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks, has been an advisor. So yeah. it's... Um, it's actually that's that itself is such a neat little story. Oh, it's so cool! Yeah, he um, found out about Salt and Straw. Someone ordered ice cream for him, and then when he looked into it, he figured out it was me. So he didn't even know, and he called Kim's. It's Howard Schultz. And come on, what is going on? What are you doing? And why haven't you told me about this? And I said, Well, what do you do? You don't just pick up the phone and call Howard Schultz and tell him what you're doing. And he said, Yes, you do. I should have known about this. And so. He flew to Portland one day. I got to drive onto the tarmac and pick him up off of his private plane and show him around all of our shops and just uh, spend the day talking about, talking to him about business and being an entrepreneur. So it's very generous of him. It was. And are there things that stuck with you from that day? Well, he said at the end of the day, I said, what scares you about what we're doing, given everything you've learned? And he said, HR, you got to get your HR in order. And I said to him, yeah, that's the thing. I don't really know what HR is. <laughs> and he said, yeah, just get hire some people, get it in even more, you know, get it, get it together. So um, interesting, because I know that you said that you had a, finan- a financial plan, but you didn't have a people plan. No. And it was funny. Um, and, and luckily, we had amazing people show up at the right time and take the this idea beyond where we ever thought it would go. But um I when we opened in San Francisco, um, by all accounts, it was a huge success. We had big lines, and 
great product, wonderful reception. Um, and Casey Milligan, who was our first ever store manager, who's now running all of our stores, called me um, a few days later and said, you know, it's not going very well here. And I said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> and she said, well, you know, just some of the things I'm seeing, other people won't notice it, but we would notice it. It's not how we do things. And it just, we always talk about our shops being a safe environment for our team. And she said, this doesn't feel safe. Um, what do you think she, what did she mean? Well, I mean, there's basic things like, you know, we have to rotate shifts constantly so people don't get hurt in carpal tunnel. And then there's other things like you feel safe, um, you've been well-trained, you can come forth, you have an advocate, like all the stuff that just makes you feel like I'm super comfortable, I'm safe here. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't organized right around all of those things. And and uh, and it's one of those things that in your head it seemed like you were set because also you put oh, a lot of energy into oh. training. But in the real world just wasn't the case. Well, we had what, – here's what happened. So she said maybe this is just what growth is like. And she said if it is, I don't think I want to do it. And, of course, that caught my attention. She's my right-hand person. Like everything you know, is around her. And so – um, I was meeting with some advisors a couple days later, and he, he asked me this question, where's your people plan? And I said, well, we're doing this, and none, 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 explained it. And he said, okay, well, I don't, what's your plan? And I said, I don't know, what do you mean? And <laughs> he said, oh, okay. And so he stopped everything and gave me access to a bunch of their different portfolio companies so I could study what a career ladder looked like and a people development and, and how, you know, two years out you can be planning for what you need. And our whole company stopped everything and created that for ourselves. It took about six months. Um, and in the meantime, um, he said to me, you know, what my experience is you have a new store and a new market with a new manager and the wheels will just fall off because they don't have your, you know, your culture and your, they're not living and breathing your company. And I said, I went back to Casey that afternoon and I said, the wheels are falling off and here's why. And so we stopped everything and reworked that. And it was really hard to climb back from that. I mean, it was great because it set us up going forth in a really good um, position, but we had to, a lot of rebuilding to do there. Um, and, and we've done it, but it's it's been hard. So Right, because so, San Francisco was the first shop outside. Um, well, L.A. was the first, but that was like our Portland and L.A. And, you know, you, can, you have two, and we... Um, I don't know that it, it didn't happen in LA. I think um, we were small enough at the time. You know, we moved a bunch of people from Portland there to help run it, and so the culture really was—it's in the humans, and the humans moved. Yeah, but yeah, harder. So you got investment from Danny Meyer um, after having cultivated that relationship, which was great. Um, but that probably allowed you to grow even more. And so are there, is there retooling that you need to do as you keep growing? Yeah. I mean, on the people part, luckily, um, this, this path that we created coming out of that situation has been really powerful and successful. You know, so we opened in Seattle and we just opened in downtown Disneyland and it's what been was that like, uh, I keep thinking I'm going to wake up from a dream and say we opened in down cause it was out of this world. I mean, 
beyond, beyond, beyond busy. And we're real busy at all of our other stores, but this was beyond anything. And just the attention we had on us from everyone at Disney was like being under a microscope. And But Disney's such an incredible company. Was there something about like oh, being inside awesome. there that you're like, aha, this was like yes. MBA three? Without question. And what, what did you learn there? Well, so, you know, it was interesting. I was, we were talking to a couple of um, folks from Disney right after we opened and they said, this has been the most successful opening we've had at Disney. And I said, what do you mean by that? Come on. And he's, they said, well, I mean, obviously the results are incredible. You can see, but they said the thing that has been great about working with your company is like no other company we worked with. You guys were just open to collaborating and you wanted to, like, we would come to the table and you were there, like, tell us what you think and let's see. And it's not like we didn't bring what we had because we knew what we were doing too, but um, they just said we were willing to kind of lean into. And so good Lord. I mean, we created a whole new way of queuing the line because Disney's really good at that. <laughs> I remember they sent, they sent a plan over for how to queue the line and I opened it up and I closed it and I said, I'm to talk about this tomorrow because it's so crazy it hurts my head but I'm sure it's probably really smart and it was I mean you go in the store and then you immediately leave and you queue up on the side all this unbelievable and then they had like industrial engineers and store designers and just teams of people there helping us figure out how to how to work it all and what did you re-engineer I mean it's it's small things so we we had been working on um a study for how to flow our stores better anyway. So we brought a lot of that. But then, um, like, we, we've we um, set up the store so you can sample in a really unique way. And then when you get to the very front, we'll scoop for you on the spot. And so they helped us come up with this new position of an expediter that helps you find the available scooper. And it's just <laughs> a very personal experience. And That's they worked great. with us on all of that. Uh, it brings up the notion of collaborations, which... You've done so many, and they're mm-hmm. so great. Okay. I think my my favorite one, and you could talk about the big idea of collaboration, but my favorite one is the Mark Bitterman Salt oh. collab from the very beginning of um, Salt and Straw. So, can you uh, like uh, tell the listeners about you know your business collabs and how they really changed you? Oh, it's so funny. I think one of the things we had going for us was Tyler, my cousin, who joined me to start the company. Um, did not know how to make ice cream, and he was the head ice cream maker. So, um, and he was still he, in culinary school at the time. So. Yes, he was. He was and, in culinary school, and, um, and and he had a goodwill mm-hmm. um, ice cream maker. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty astonishing. Yeah, he was living in my basement and making ice cream in our kitchen on an ice cream maker from the Goodwill, which there's lots of them because people buy all these ice cream makers and don't end up doing it. So it's good because they're your customers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they come and eat it instead. So. Um, so here we were, uh, you know, reaching out to different people in the community to help figure out how to make these flavors. And it turned into this idea of kind of one plus one equals 11. Like we're, um, it's just better and better and better. And so Mark, I remember we had a sea salt ice cream on the menu and Tyler and I were there one morning early working and getting ready to open the store. And this guy knocked on the window he had a silver briefcase. I'm not exaggerating. He came in. We didn't know who he was. I'm Mark Bitterman. I own the Meadow. I your sea salt ice cream. It could be better. And he opens up this this um, suitcase, and it's full of salt. And he we begin to do a salt tasting of every possible salt, and we're combining it with cream. And and by the end of it, we had picked this you know Florida cell from 
Guatemala and um, we still use it now. And he's one of the company's best, best, best friends. Um, he sells our pints in his store in New York, which is really exciting. And um, we continue to work together on different collaborations. But it's just an example of, I think, so many things. But one thing is, um, you know, this this spirit in Portland of like, I want to help you and I want to offer what I have and we can work together to make it better and um, less about competition and more about that community coming together to create something. So there's so many collabs that I know about that are in the ice cream zone, but are there ways that you've sort of projected back into those Portland businesses that I don't know anything about? Mm. You know, it's interesting. We just got a um, a tax credit <laughs> from um, the city uh, to start a new um, artisan incubator program. So um, there's some other examples of things we've done. Like, I mean, you know, the the woodblock chocolate. Um, working with Charlie, who was starting it about the same time as us. I mean, we helped him form his business. We were his largest customer. It allowed him to buy equipment and move into a space, and and we would market him on our on our menu and he could grow as we grew, which was so exciting. And so it made (laughs) us realize, you know, we could do this for real. And, and, um, so we are, um, working with a couple of different entities. There's, um, an entrepreneur group in Portland who, um, we're working with to put together a five week course. It's every Friday. And then at the end of it, one um, company will be picked for this artisan incubator program and they'll work with us for the next year on a, kind of going through all the HR, uh-huh. very important, <laughs> food safety, accounting, marketing, kind of a whole um, uh, curriculum um, of how to get your business up and running. So that, uh, that idea of giving back and helping those and, behind us. Um, what about the flavors? Because we, you know, we've talked so much about like how this came to be, but one of the reasons it came to be yeah. and is so special in addition to the collabs, which make the the flavor special is uh, your cousin Tyler is um, <laughs> like a freak of nature, brilliant in terms of an unusual way of thinking. When you, in all the years you were thinking about this project, because it really was your dream, did you think, were you thinking outside the box or were you thinking vanilla chocolate? I'm just going to do the best. And then Tyler comes along and he's like, no, I want to do beer. <laughs> I want to do bourbon. I'm not to make it all too boozy. Bone marrow. I want to do bite. I want to do bone marrow. I mean, really, the flavors. Because um, he came and we tasted when I was at, at Food and Wine, mm-hmm. and you know they sounded horrible. And I tasted them like these are great. Remember that was early on. It was too. really it was early. So yeah. scary. <laughs> I mean, I had a sense for the fact that it could be a little more creative than vanilla and chocolate. Um, I did. <clears throat> but no, I mean, when he heard that I was going to open an ice cream company, he started developing recipes on his Goodwill ice cream maker north of Seattle, testing them and sending me the recipes and the response he was getting from people. And he kept doing this and doing this. And, this, and I kept saying, Tyler, I can't bring you on um first of all what if this doesn't work out and then you we're still cousins and (laughs) and i've ruined your life (laughs) not to be dramatic but then um also like i kind of need someone who knows how to make ice cream so uh but he said finally said i'll come and live in your basement and i'll run errands i'll just i want to help start the company and so soon after arriving i could tell like he's pretty good at making ice cream so Mm -hmm. the rest was sort of history but yeah he definitely brought it to a new level and he 
You know, I always say he probably has the least amount of ego of anyone I've ever met. And I think that allows him to both collaborate in a way that just is totally like, I'm here, I'm everything's on the table. I'm here to work with you 100%. As well as like, it just causes this real sense of curiosity um, that he brings to the creative process that isn't like anything I've ever seen. And did you have concerns about working with your family, someone mm-hmm. from your family? Yeah, I mean, I guess just the concern of, you know, if anything goes awry. But I'll tell you, from the minute he arrived, it was so just, I, I guess it's because he, what he and I do are so different within mm-hmm. the company that it just works really well. And we, um, he comes from a part of the family that's a little more liberal. I mean, we share the same values. I mean, it's almost scary. We'll show up in the morning and say, like, we were both reading the same article last night and wondering about, you know, I mean, we're very different how we approach things, which is a strength, but we come at it with a lot of the same philosophy. And we're definitely both about like, let's do, we don't have to stick to the way that things have been done. We can think of it in a new way. And he, he comes, he approaches things from that point of view. So what are the things that, um, I mean, it's the same Howard question you asked Albert Schultz, like, you know, <laughs> what scares you about your own company or growth right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, um, the, 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 um, uh, meditation seminar that I told you about earlier, it was funny cause we, I took it right when we were starting the company and I walked out on the street and it was all about positive visualization. And I said to my friend, Chris Jones, um, we were just chatting and she said, okay, well, the company's starting in a couple of weeks and how are you feeling? We were just getting going. And I said, well, I'm planning for the worst. And she just looked at me. She's like, we just spent all this time at this positive visualization. <laughs> and I said, well, I really operate out of fear. And, um, I heard Joe Montana speak a little while later and he said the same thing. And then, uh, like about two months ago, I got to be to dinner with him and, I asked him, like, what did you mean by that? Because I, I do, too. But people think it's so weird that I operate out of fear, and I can't explain it. And he said, well, I assume I'm going to be successful. I know I will be, but I operate out of fear. And I said, yeah, I think I think that's it. So as I think of the future for us, um, I'm always re- I'm worried about a lot of things. You know, I um, first and foremost, our, you know, our culture and our people and staying true to that um, and being a place that's worthy of... Um, our audience and worthy of uh, all these people's life's energy that they're bringing forth. Um, you know, our, obviously our product quality, but I feel like we're pretty, you know, we're unwavering on that and can keep our eye on that pretty. It's a, it's a little, it's a little more tactile than the, the, the culture and people part. Um, it's a little harder to, to, to keep your hands on. Um, and then I think just making the right decisions that, um, you know, are relevant to people. I don't want to be on every corner everywhere. I want it to be a special thing and, and do the hard work of, you know, coming up with menus that are local and, and, um, and being able to sustain that as we grow and not lose that. That seems like a very um, genuine challenge because you work so closely, you have worked so closely with the, um, in the local markets with partners and, Mm -hmm. and the schools and, you know, your ability to connect um, makes you very relevant, but the more money you have, the bigger you grow, the bigger your ambition, the harder that is. And you obviously don't shy away from hard things, but I guess it's important to know how hard that is. No, you're right. I mean, we even, 
over the past several months had to take kind of a soul searching um, look at what what's really sustainable. And, um, you know, we have all these different menus in five different cities. And um, the funny thing is, like, Tyler's really good at going out and finding those relationships and creating those menus. Um, But internally, it's it's like running five different companies in a way from our, you know, training and manufacturing and all of those things. And so, um, you know, I, I said to everyone, like, if we can't do this really well, we shouldn't be doing it. And I think that was a big wake up call and really kind of scared us all because we don't want to give up on that. So um, we stepped back and sort of retooled a lot of what we were doing. And um, it's been it's been great coming out the other end. And um, you were talking about like using fear as a motivator <laughs> is um, are there other like what is the other the other large emotions that motivate you? Mm. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that Casey was our first store manager and now she runs all of our stores. Um, uh, the, several folks in, in our company have um, been able to do really amazing things, much beyond what I could have imagined. And I, that probably gives me the biggest sense of pride um, so that's a, that's a big motivator for me to be able to see that happen. And, um, you know, sometimes I'll drive away from one of our stores and I can see in the rear view mirror, this glow of people on the street eating their ice cream. And, you know, it's a full like Abbott Kenny's, you know, um, big line and big smiles on people's faces. And I feel like, gosh, that, that was that dream of a community gathering place and the people coming together and, getting job offers or marriage proposals and just meeting each other. And we don't have many places to do that nowadays. So I don't know what emotion that is, but um, it definitely makes me kind of tear up. Warm and fuzzy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And with that, there's one more question that I always close the show with, which is, uh, is there a woman that you would pay it forward to somebody in food or hospitality who has shown you the way, shown you kindness and support? who you'd love to call out. Mm-hmm. Her name is Maggie Wiseman. And um, she was a principal um, in Billings, Montana, actually. And um, her, I dated her son for like 10 years. Wow. <laughs> and during and that that's time... Not the, that's not the first marriage. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. Sorted back, back history. <sighs> so um, Maggie moved to Seattle and started um, Great Harvest Bread there. And while I was in college, um, she took me in during this tumultuous time with my family and let me live um, at her house. And so I would help her in the bakery and work. It was one of my many jobs. Um, and work on the front line. Um, and I can remember this one time in particular, you know, Maggie had been in the Peace Corps early on, and she just had this great life um, vision for what a person could do and how people can positively affect each other. And I remember one time I went with her to take one of the employees that she had recently hired to the store to buy some deodorant. And he was recently out of prison, and she was kind of helping him figure out how to have a job and be successful. And I had never seen anything like that and I thought okay this is what we do we can really actually just stop and help one person and make sure they have what they need to be successful and I I think that gave me a little peek into what the hospitality industry could do not just for your customers but for your employees and your team and with that so such a moving story so Mm -hmm. amazing to change a single life right I mean that's significant just one 
you know, we can all change just one. And in your case, you can make a lot of happiness and um, mm-hmm. and also support such a, I mean, I know you're up to at least 400 employees. Is that around where you are? Yeah, a little today? more. Someone said with the opening of Disney, we're like close to pushing 500. Yeah. So that's a tribe of 500 people spreading happiness. That's great. So um, thank you so much for coming on. If people want to find Salt and Straw, how do they find you? Mm, saltandstraw.com. Um, and you can always email us at human at saltandstraw.com. That, that always makes its way to me. And <laughs> I, uh, that's better than plain old info. Well, human is um, Ian. Our Ian was our first ever hire at Salt and Straw, and now he's the human at Salt and Straw. So he's he actually keeps his email box in better shape than me. So <laughs> more likely to get a response from Ian than me. <laughs> that yeah, that's along with like husband and <laughs> athletics is email box. Yeah, I have no aspirations for getting a hold you on don't. that. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm giving you're, up. You're, be- you're better than I, right? <laughs> and um, you can find me at FW Scout. Uh, let me know if you have any thoughts or comments on the past shows. If you like what you hear, uh, subscribe on Apple Podcast. And if you have suggestions and recommendations um, of people that you'd like to hear me interview, uh, send them along. I'm all ears. And that's it for today's show. Until next week, have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.